What up, peeps? Top of the hour. That would be 1 p.m. Eastern time. Check it out because CBW is in the three box. I mean, we're not even messing around today. We're bringing them right in. G-Swiz here, always joined by Dan Nathan, clearly joined by Carter Braxton Worth. Today's episode of Market Call brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow, Dan. And we are powered by Open Exchange. Check them out on Twitter at Open Exchange TV. Everybody's waited. What do they call that? Bated breath for these geniuses to speak whenever they speak. Good for them. I'm not particularly all that interested, but we're going to talk about it regardless. How are you, Dan? I'm doing great. I mean, it it is interesting to think, you know, and I think we talked a little bit about it on Market Call yesterday. And I'd love, you know, Carter, if you have any context and if you've done any work, you know, of kind of movement into and out of Fed meetings. We highlighted the fact that the S&P was careening lower in March, right, before that they were ready to kind of raise and they had kind of telegraphed that they're going to be raising 25 basis points at that March meeting. And we ricocheted out of that. We bottomed right before that. The price action today is pretty interesting. Early in the week, you know, Carter, you thought the S&P was setting up for an oversold bounce a little bit. And so I'm fascinated. You talk about bated breath. I'm fascinated to see if we get what the Fed just kind of pivoted from 50 to 75 basis points. They floated that trial balloon early. How does the market react? I honestly don't know. And I'm just curious, Carter, thoughts there? The the first and obvious takeaway is, remember, these are just guys, uh, men and women who put their clothes on in the morning like everybody else. I mean, they have to pivot because they don't have a clue either, right? They're just, they always use that phrase data dependent. And they're just in the tough spot of having to actually make the call. It's like like a coach. And sometimes you run the play and it's not a good one. But the thing is this, the last time we had aggressive, really aggressive, in 1994, right, the Fed basically doubled the Fed funds rate from 3 to 6%. Now, those are much higher rates than we have now. And effectively, the stock market was dead flat, which is interesting. It, uh, it had its narrowest range in almost 20 years. And then it took off from right, 95 all the way to the 2000 peak. So the market is trying to figure this out. But to some extent, I would just say that the important thing is that the risk here is that it's actually somehow it checks off enough boxes that you maybe go down initially and then surge and have one of these big bars when you're in the green. I think that's probably what's coming. Yeah, Guy, I'm just curious, you know, you've been noting, you know, the upward pressure in yields, you've been calling for it for a year. And you did say on many occasions this year that I think a lot of investors are going to be surprised in how quickly rates are going to move when they start to move. You look at this two-year yield, they got the memo here, right? And yeah. the two-year treasury and, you know, started the month of June somewhere near what? Two and a half percent. And here we are yesterday. It almost got to three and a half percent. That sort of volatility. What would you say about that guy? Well, you know, you're going to make me say witches brew or yeah. all those types of things that I, it is my want to say. I'll just say this bond market again for the thousandth time. I mean, it's just comical, the moves in some of these things. I mean, two-year yields, by the way, Dan, and you know this, Carter knows it as well. It's something that if we talked about it three times over the course of the first 14 years of fast money, it was a lot. We just never brought it up because we didn't have to. When you're talking about an instrument that was 25 basis points and seemingly going nowhere, and now you see where it is now. For good reason, by the way. I mean, everything that's happening makes a lot of sense. It's the velocity in which we got here, I think, that is spooking people. So people say, what's the big deal? The bond market's not broken. It's Well, let me just tell you something. When you have 15, 20 basis point moves a day in an instrument that historically moved maybe one or two basis points a week, 
That, to me, folks, is broken. But here we are, and we'll see what happens. I think the two years is going to stay pretty sturdy at these levels, if not continue to ratchet higher. And I think the problem you're going to see is me on the back end in the form of 10-year yields, which I think will probably start to ease on the back of slowing economic data. We've talked about it for a while. We thought the bond market, the yield curve would invert. It happened. We thought it would then sort of pull back. It went to 40 basis points or so. Contango for you playing our home game. <laughs> Or you bingo players out there. Now it's you know it's going to go negative again. It went negative briefly. It's going to happen again. So that's not particularly good. I don't think it augurs particularly well for anything, quite frankly. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. We've been talking about this for months. Our friend Danny Moses, our co-host on On the Tape podcast, introduced the idea to us well before we ever heard it in the financial press. I think it was kind of last summer, the idea about stagflation. And to your point, Guy, you've been calling for this 210 yield inversion here. And really, it does spell out in a picture, right, stagflation, right, where you have rates that have moved higher and are going to stay higher, but then you have the opposite effect on growth, right, where growth comes in and you're saying you're going to see that in the 10-year yield. Carter, speak to me a little bit about this 10-year yield chart. We have a two-year chart here. You see it broke out above those kind of pre-pandemic levels from 2019. If you kind of buy what Guy Adami is kind of laying out here, what would you think about a pullback in the 10-year yield, especially if investors start to think that the Fed has at least jawboned and are going to do enough over the next few meetings? Might you see with slower growth that 10-year come back below 3%, possibly as low as 2.5%? Sure. So let's, let's the first exercise is to do it in the most respectful way. It doesn't have to be a yield chart. Let's suspend what we know. Is that a software stock that just broke out? Yeah. Is that a staple? Is it a commodity? The point is, one would look at that and say, that's a big move. Did it just have news? Guess what? It's priced in in anticipation of the news. This is a classic. And so as you buy the rumor, sell this. Everyone knows what's coming. Could be. Is it going to be 100 basis points? Probably not. 75 basis points. Guess what? It's already it's already being worked into the market. I think this is where you get the fade. It does the yields falter here. All right. So maybe the TLT is looking kind of interesting. That's the 20 year U.S. Treasury ETF or the GOVT. I bought a little of that a little too early. You know, my kind of Q's and twos call that I've been touting over the last few weeks. But let's look at the stock market here, because when you talk about what's priced in guy, I got a one year chart of the SPX, the S&P 500 here. And, you know, we had that kind of sharp sell off into the May lows. We had that kind of bounce. I think all of us were in agreement that that bear market balance that we had on the one-year chart, if they can throw that up, wasn't that impressive. We did have that consolidation late May into earlier of this month here. And then as soon as we got that really bad CPI reading, right? I mean, investors became very concerned that the Fed was going to have to get more aggressive with their tightening. We saw the market fall out of bed and make new lows. Talk to me a little bit about this one-month period, because again, was this investors pushing the Fed around thinking that if the stock market got really nasty or if they thought, again, like you say, they're not going to fight the Fed here, that they're going to actually have to make a more concerted effort to fight inflation? No, that's interesting. I, I like what you did there in terms of formulating that question. I'll say this. I think what it spoke to, in my opinion, is the fact that people woke up to the fact that the Fed's no longer their ally. And I don't think they're trying to force the Fed into being more dovish. I just think they've come to the realization, hey, wait a second. 
Maybe these guys, mostly guys, by the way, have decided that inflation really is a problem. They're going to try to be responsible for the first time in decades. And I think that's what the market is speaking to. And listen, it's not like we haven't talked about this for a while. I mean, the math equation got us to the levels that we traded down to the other day. I do think, I think Carter agrees with it, Dan. I know you agree with it as well. You know, I think we're setting up here for a pretty violent bounce to the upside in the form of a couple hundred S&P handles, not necessarily today, but over the course of the next few sessions. And I do think that will be, I think selling will find its way back into the market. So we've seen bounces like this before over the last couple of months, and I think we're setting up for another one here. Ultimately, I think we do overshoot to the downside in the form of, I think you think 3,200 and sort of those pre-pandemic highs. I'm more in the 3,400 to 3,500 camp. Doesn't matter. I think, again, there's an inevitability to that that we will get there. Yeah, I'm definitely in the more 3,400. That was the February 2020 high. I guess what I say about that is round tripping psychologically the entire move. And Carter, I definitely want to get your take on this. From, okay, we know what happened in February, March, April of 2020. I don't think any of us thought the V reversal was going to be as violent because I don't think any of us thought they were going to throw as many trillions in monetary and fiscal stimulus at that. But why do we have that range identified? It's kind of bracketing 3,500 here because I think that September 2020, that high that we had there, it felt like a very emotional high, right? And to me, because if we remember, we were just climbing a wall of worry and then we had a period of volatility. So to me, I'm definitely in that 3,400 camp, but it also means that valuations have overshot to the downside. And then in speed in which it kind of mends itself is going to be really important to me. Talk to me, Carter, because again, if you do, let's just say we had guys move to 4,000, okay, in the S&P 500. But then we get through the end of the quarter, we start getting negative pre-announcements from some major names. We realize that growth is going to be slow. Maybe we realize that Q2 was a negative GDP print and we are officially in a recession, then what happens here? But down 30% from the highs, which gets you back to the pre-pandemic highs in the S&P 500, that's when I think a lot of investors maybe start getting interested in kind of saying, all right, this is probably getting close to enough. Sure. I mean, there are a couple of ways to look at it. One, we know, for instance, the Russell 2000 is already at its pre-pandemic highs. It's, it depends on which aggregate you look at. So the here and now is there are two unfilled gaps. We Because of the CPI, I guess, and, and then following through Monday, we have a gap down the S&P on Friday and again on Monday. Were you to fill the uppermost of those two gaps, that gets you to literally 4,017, just exactly the level the guy's talking about. And that's kind of what the sequence calls here. As you go down, Enron had 15, 20 to 40% moves, right? So you get counter trend moves. What you're speaking, of course, is then on a longer term basis, is the bear market likely to be over here? Highly unlikely, right? Because there are two stages to a bear outside of charts. First, you get multiple contraction. That's what's happening. And then the earnings start to deteriorate. So we've seen the first part. Multiples have come in from Microsoft to, to Ford Motor down 50%. And then the earnings start to, and you see it now, revisions are, are, are weakening from the sell side community. And then you get actually earnings misses and earnings come down. And then you're complete. And then usually you have your bear market low. 
Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that we've been kind of keying on here is just the NASDAQ leadership. We've been talking about this for months and we know that those top five, six names make up what 45% of the NASDAQ 100. They make up 25% of the S&P 500. They did at the highs here. The NASDAQ underperformance relative to the S&P is obviously makes some sense down 30% from its highs. The S&P is down about 20 or so. Guy, talk to me a little bit about the NDX because this thing really fell out of bed. And when things get nasty, you know, when the dollar's up, when rates are higher, when it feels like the Fed is going to be more aggressive for longer. Some of these names that you know are unprofitable, came public in the last couple of years via SPAC, regular way, whatever it is, when crypto is melting down, it seems like there's just no bid for these NASDAQ names. And then all of a sudden now, we've had Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon start to really play catch up to the downside. I'll throw NVIDIA up there. Meta, Facebook is down 50% on the year. Talk to me a little bit about how you're thinking about the NASDAQ and the NDX versus, let's say, the S&P 500. Yeah, well, it's important to go back quickly, and we'll just sort of go back down memory lane. And we talked about this again in the fall into December, January, February. And we said how, you know, if you're looking carefully the Nasdaq never really, never really reinforced that S and P 500 new all time high, and we said that didn't augur particularly well. And then we started to say, you know, what the Nasdaq chart looks worse than the S and P chart. All those things wound up being true, and I think what you're going to see here, if I had a guess, the last leg of this will come in the form of probably Apple announcing something to the effect of, you know, demand's not where we thought it would be. Those types of things yeah. or that type of language. But I'll throw one more caveat into this one more variable into this equation as well and again this is something we've talked about literally since the fall when nobody was talking about geopolitical risk we were bringing it up here on market call one of the things we said russia ukraine was likely post-olympics that actually happened almost to the day and we also said china taiwan will rear its ugly head and if you're paying attention to the news which i know all of our viewers are you're starting to see some saber rattling out of China. So just keep in mind that that's out there. I'll say this. I think this will resolve itself, as I mentioned, with Apple talking about some sort of demand destruction. And I think it's going to be one of those multi-generational buying opportunities. But it ain't here yet, Dan, or Carter, for that matter. Fair enough. Talking about buying opportunities, maybe, question mark, question mark. There's a couple sectors that were acting very well in the not so distant past. And I really wanted to kind of get your fundamental take guy, but but Carter's technical take also. One of these was consumer staples. And I know that we've talked about some of the staples. If you look at the XLP, the ETF that tracks the consumer staple, you know, it's basically gone from you know an all-time high just mm-hmm. above 80 to just below 70, you know, in a matter of uh, let's call it a month and a half, 25% or 26% or so is Procter & Gamble and Coke. And if you look at those charts, man, like look at Procter. I mean, this thing has absolutely gotten slayed. It got rejected at that prior resistance, Carter, at 165 not too long ago. And here we are making new 52-week lows. And the thing has gone from 145 to 130 in a straight line in what feels like a week. When you see this sort of price action in a group like this that people had been crowding in for, I guess, relative safety, you know, when we see correlations happen like this, does it make you feel like, does this kind of strengthen the case for why we might get a bounce because some of the relative strength leaders are starting to participate to the downside? Well, sure. Let me jump in. I mean, 100%. What happens is it's the class leading. We've all talked about it. They go around and they get to the holdouts last, call them the generals or call them what you want. And so energy starting to come under pressure. You saw huge moves in some of the refining names and things like Procter. We also know that Staples' relative performance 
just two weeks ago was more extreme to the mm-hmm. upside than it was at the COVID low. So everything goes down in COVID, but the spread between staples, safe haven, higher dividend paying, lower beta, was at a record. And now we got exceeding that level just three weeks ago. It's all coming apart. The next one to go is, is Colgate. It looks like it's going to do exactly what Procter did, plunge. I think Carter makes a great point. And actually, Carter talked about this weeks ago, if I remember. And I'll say this. I think what happened with Procter & Gamble specifically is, well, if you put that chart back up real quick, we'll take a look at it. I mean, first of all, technicals will suggest and the technicians out there will say bit of a double top, not a huge in terms of duration. I mean, we're talking about only a couple months, but double top nonetheless. And when everybody started looking at valuations in earnest, they started obviously taking out the real high flyers first. And then they said, wait a second. Why is Procter & Gamble trading at 28 times next year's numbers? It doesn't make any sense. We've enjoyed the run in this. we got to start to take some money off the table here. And I think that's exactly what happened. Because Procter & Gamble, to me, never really made a whole hell of a lot of sense in terms of valuation. Now things are starting to make a little more sense. So as extreme as they were just literally a few weeks ago, I think you're seeing some of the same extremes here. And I actually think, again, these are all really healthy signs for the market. This is not bad. This is actually good. Painful to get here, but good for the long run. Yeah. And I think that the idea that, let's say, a Procter or a Coke, which has a lot of international exposure in the face of a surging dollar, in the face of like beaten up supply chains, in the face of, you know, higher costs, input costs, as it relates to, you know, a whole host of, you know, shipping and production or whatever, that they were somehow going to be immune doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. Guy, I want to hit you really quickly because this chart is pretty fascinating. This XLU, the ETF that tracks the utility sector. We don't have to go in great detail because I think a lot of what Carter just said about staples really applies to this sector, if you will. But look at that thing, man. I mean, it came back to that you know, uptrend line that it has tested, I think, on three or four occasions over the last two years. Thoughts on a group like this that was also expensive at its recent highs here? Does it look attractive from a purely technical standpoint to you? Yeah, well, this may, I mean, if you think about just sort of the economics behind it, the move to the downside makes sense vis-a-vis the move in the upside in rates, right? I mean, you know, when you're looking for yield, when there is none, utilities obviously make a lot of sense. When bonds start going higher, when rates start going higher, utilities don't make as much sense as they did. So this pretty steep move coincides, in my opinion, with the move we've seen in interest rates. I'll say this as well, though. If you do believe the 10 year is going to start to come back in, which I do, by the way, on the back of weaker economic data, I think these utilities make a lot of sense, especially vis-a-vis this trend line that you so elegantly drew, Dan. Carter, talk to me. Yes, elegant trend line. Yeah, you sort of foreshadowed. It's the exact same setup. So if you look at the spread, and, and one could say, who cares about spreads? Who cares about ratios? Every hedge dollar and every hedge fund is based on relative. It's just the way it is. And so the overshoot, i.e. the relative outperformance, utility staples, were reaching levels and exceeded levels seen at the COVID low. And so this unwind is part of the unwind of those holdouts. Staples go, utilities go, and we're seeing energy crack as well. And that's when you're getting closer to the end of an intermediate period of selling, which sets you up for a bounce. Down in the trend line, in a perfect world, I would sell puts and wait to get paid or keep it all. 
Yeah. All right. Let's talk about it. You just said energy starting to crack. You know, last night on Fast Money, you know, we were talking about this in a way. And, and, and again, you know, I'll just repeat that, you know, I understand that the Biden administration, you know, approval rating is very low and it's been low for a long time. I think that they are clearly getting blamed for inflation and their inability to kind of like really message, I think, uh, like in a good manner. And I'm not tr- meant, meant to be political here. I just don't think they're doing a particularly good job here. And I don't think there's a a whole host of things that can help them out right now. And I'm not sure going to Saudi and meeting MBS is something that will help this thing. But from a sentiment standpoint, it might just be the thing, right? Because it's become a very crowded trade. Low single digits percent of the S&P 500 to mid single digits. People are all excited about that. I don't love the messaging around the idea of windfall taxes on these companies. You know, like it just, to me, doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. That being said, I want to take a look real quickly before we look at the crude chart. Look at the XME, the ETF that tracks metal and mining. And this is, again, you know, stocks. This is, again, an area where people, you know, were were kind of loading up into that inflationary story. You see that breakout that we had earlier in the winter. You know, it seemed like a near parabolic move. It's come back. And now it's kind of sitting back at that breakout level. Carter, thoughts here? And if you want to extrapolate it a little bit into some of the other commodity charts that you've been tracking over the last year or so. And so they all, if you look at the GSG, that's the ETF, tracks commodities, heavily weighted towards oil and energy in general. But if you look at the Bloomberg Spot Commodity Index, the CRV, they all have a rollover cast them. Now, this particular thing, XME, has, for instance, VTU Coal is one of the top holdings, but it's also got Alcoa and US Steel and Nucor, et cetera, and so forth. And so it's a great overshoot and a great undershoot. And this is what a pair of twos is. Meaning it's look at the line, you're at support. Can it sink into support a little bit? Sure. Does it start to bounce here? Sure. The point is, there's no big bet here. The main thing is, is that it gave back all of the gains that were so special, just as Alcoa and Ford and everything else that was so special. And Tesla and tech, everyone loved tech, of course. Now they don't. Guess what? Energy's next. There's no way around it. Yeah, you know, that's, I, I mean, you and I are kind of in the same camp here. And even Guy, who's been on, and again, you know, he's been on the right side of the energy equity trade. He's been on the right side of the direction in crude. What I thought was really interesting about crude is that when it checked back earlier in the spring to that uptrend that had been in place from the December lows, the way in which it's gone up has kind of been at a glacial sort of pace. I know that you were saying that you didn't think that was that likely that we were going to see a retest of that kind of emotional 130 high that we had back there in March. Talk to me what you think. Again, my chart, beautiful fact set chart, not yours with your great lines here. What do you think about that uptrend? I know that kind of like- Yeah, no, no, the line's great. The uptrend is what it is. You connect yeah. in at least three spots, you almost four. So that's the, the, the flat line is arbitrary, right? I mean, I, I know yeah. what you're trying to do. I guess the issue is this, and this, and you've referred to it. When crude, Brent went from 100 to 140 in six sessions. Think of that, 40%. When crude went from essentially $90 a barrel to 130, 45% in six sessions, how much was discounted? It's, it's about to be July, July 1. I mean, here's the thing. I don't think we're taking out those highs. And so energy has overshot. I think you really would do want to be fading your energy book, putting on credit spreads, doing risk reversals or whatever it is, yeah. but taking advantage. 
All right, this is some data that Amanda compiled from our friends at FactSet about the S&P 500 performance here. And I think this is really interesting. You'll hear a lot of smart strategists say, well, don't worry too much about how much stocks are off their highs here. But for me, I always find it fascinating from a sentiment standpoint, you know, just to kind of get a sense for just how low investors are willing to sell stocks who've rode them all the way up and all the way down. And look at this data here. 96% of stocks are at least down 10%, 70 at least down 20%. That would be the official definition of a bear market. We don't care about that. 42% of stocks down 30%, 19 down 40%, 8% down at least 50%. Now, in the NASDAQ, that probably looks a lot worse, right, if you think about it. So, Carter, talk to me about this. Yeah, how you're thinking. Yeah, so let's let's look at the S&P, of course, as we know, is so cap-weighted. If you take the Russell 3000 and look at these same statistics, now we're talking about the S&P 500 plus another 2,500 stocks, effectively 98% of the investable capital in the United States. The bottom figure there, number of stocks or percentage of stocks of the 3,000 that have lost 50% or more, it's one-third, one out of three, one out of three. Think about that. 33% of all stocks in the U.S. market, forget the S&P, forget the Dow, have already lost 50% from their 52 a night. Yeah. It is what it is. Pretty astounding. All right. So, you know, one of the things that we try to do here is pick some unusual values. You approach it from a technical standpoint. Guy and I try to use what you call the funny mentals every once in a while. And and hopefully the technicals that which we learned from you, buddy, will help confirm some of our entry and exits and the like here. Talk to me about a name that's kind of catching your eye, because this is one widely held name. You know, it was a disruptive name of some prior tech disruptors, but it's come in very hard, 50%, right? Like many stocks that we just talked about that people just didn't see ever getting cut in half, especially last year. That's right. I mean, and epic ones, right? You, you, And this is as epic because it's it's got history, right? IPO 1957, yeah. Goldman Lehman on the cover, the prospectus down 53% from its peak. Now, here's the thing that just seems curious. I didn't manipulate that line. I didn't try to wiggle it and get it to fit. That line is using magnets so that the lows connect. It is touched those points. That's the 09 to 2022 entire bull phase. Yeah. So we have dropped to the penny to a trend line. And I think it's as good a bet as any here to play for a bounce. So no, you look at, yeah. So, Carter, really quickly, because I, I love how you frame this. So this is Disney, okay? And it went public in 1957 with Golden and Lehman on the cover here. What is special about Disney? You and I have been in the business a long time. Disney was a special stock when I entered the business in the late 90s. It was a special stock. I remember when there was a huge print in the days after 9-11. Do you remember that? It was like yep. low single digits. It was a huge stock, you know, in the finance. It, it's just always been a huge stock. It, it, right. it captures a point, like a large portion of the American investor psyche. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, first, it's Americana at its greatest, right? If there are the great brands that, whether it was the Marlboro Man or the Nike swoosh or yeah. more recent or Coca-Cola, Levi's jeans that people in the, in the deepest, horrible places around the world with no money, no income, were desperate to get a Coke or a Levi's jeans or a Marlboro smoke. Disney is in that category, right? A rare, rare franchise. But well, I would say that the, despite the fact they probably took on a lot of debt to survive COVID and they got issues with Netflix, if you just step back and think that there are properties, there are assets, we've all played Monopoly. There's a reason that Park Place commands a higher level than another lesser property. And so if you look at it just as a property, independent of what this current circumstance is, 
the business is, if you can say this, eternal, right? And while that one say, ha ha, look, he just said that and Kodak's gone, Xerox is gone and so forth and so on. But it's the library loan, it's all of those things. And so actually I would just make one point in the publishing business, you know, you give a big advance to someone, you hope it's going to work, you through, and then a book doesn't work. Guess what the publishing does? It's backlinks books. Guess what's the number? They publish the dictionary over and over. They publish the Bible over and over. They do Stephen King over and over. They always want something that's reliable. So is this property, forget about this movie or that movie, forget about this moment of debt and COVID, is this as a property, if you buy it down 50%, you're going to look forward in two, three years or longer and say, wow, I can't believe I was so lucky. I think the answer is yes. All right. Well, I, I love that. All right. Talk to us a little bit about the, I mean, your charts are fascinating. You drew that first line here. You would say to the penny, it's not arbitrary yep. here. Talk to me a little bit about relative to the S&P. And, and again, you know, one of the things that I, you make this point all the time, you talk to a lot of institutional clients you have for decades here, but at worth charting, not only are you laying stuff out for individual self-directed investors and traders, but you're also talking to big money people who want to see what you see on a relative basis outright basis. What is this setup versus the S&P telling you in Disney right now? Right. Well, just to make that point, I mean, there are a lot of great online services, but I think what's unique about ours is uh, I am talking to the largest asset managers in the world on a regular basis, both long only, long short, family offices, pension plans, and that's an important piece of our work. So first, a comparative chart, not a ratio chart, just one line versus the other, S&P in green, Disney in orange. Now let's look at the ratio, which is what relative strength is all about. If you look at the next chart, what this is, is this is an all data now, not back to 1957. I've only got data back to 1974, but that is simply a ratio chart. One thing divided by the other, and it's a way to depict relative strength. Interpret it simply this way. If the yellow line is going up, Disney is outperforming. If it's going down, it's underperforming. Now look at the line on the next chart. Hmm, it's to the penny. Put in the arrows. So. Does it have to bounce here? It's only three touch points. No, but I think it does. Worst performing Dow stock, three months. Worst performing Dow stock, six months. I think we just be contrarian here and make a bet. Okay, I like that. And again, I mean, you're, you're bringing you're bringing the data and we on Market Call will bring receipts because that's what we do. We don't shy away from being wrong because a lot of what we do is you got, you know, you, what do you do? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You've heard that one before, right, yes. Carter? You know, it's interesting. I started this week out and it was really before the Fed floated that trial balloon about a 75 basis point hike here. And I started out thinking the way the market had sold off because of the data that was Whatever the perception would be about what they did or didn't do is in the market here. And we were due for one of those sharp bounces. I'm just curious, you know, we had some really bad price action on Monday, which was follow through from really bad price action on Friday. I thought yesterday's price action in the stock market was not great. There were some things that were kind of troubling me with some big names. Target was making new 52-week lows. JP Morgan was. A lot of those travel names, Jets, Airbnb, Expedia. I mean, just didn't feel that great. So here we are today. The market participants have had more time to digest the fact that possibly or most likely they're going to go 75 five basis points, which was a big change, Carter, right? And also in July, in such a short period of time, so soon in front of the meeting. And so I look at the market right here, the S&P is up, I don't know, about 1%. The NASDAQ is up a little less than 2%. And I feel like that's not great. I, I'm just curious no, to not. think, what, what, what do you think? 
What do you think the knee-jerk reaction, if they come through with 75 and they signal that they're going to stay this hawkish, so that means 75 in July, what do you think the knee-jerk reaction in the stock market? Right. So one thing, you know, even test taking, you're supposed to do A, B, C, D, you eliminate the ones. Yeah. Let's say they came in and said, which we're not going to do anything. <laughs> okay. The market would crash. That would yeah. be like, oh, these guys are out to lunch. Let's say they came in and said, we're doing 25. We kind of changed our mind. Market crashes. I don't think it likes that. So the question is, does the market like 50 or is the market like 75? I think if it's the 75, which is the sort of the newly revised, hey, it could be this much, that you will get a, a negative reaction that ultimately is one of these reversal days where all of a sudden it starts climbing into the close. It's like a big reversal close on the high. That's my hunch. So I think the initial reaction is going to be a little tepid, if not negative, with yeah. the odds being. Now, <laughs> sort of saying, yeah, and when it closes down 3% today on the lows because they said they're going to do 75 three more times. Okay, well, you know, yeah, when you're wrong, you got to pivot. But the point is, you've asked, and my thinking is that we probably have initial weakness and then we recover. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, oftentimes, and, and you know this, that that first, that's why I use the term knee-jerk, that sometimes the first yep. knee-jerk reaction in the post, you know, hour or so into the close after the Fed announcement, sometimes that gets reversed really hard the next day, too. So sometimes I like to wait and see how we close, because if it doesn't feel right, sometimes taking a shot and going the other direction, especially if you are, you know, already, you know, like, Proceedingly thinking that this was going to bounce, but we close low. Sometimes that makes sense. I might look to do if we were to close very poorly, something on a short-term basis in the spy calls. Who knows? Carter, thank you for stepping in for the whole program oh, of market call. If you guys notice, Guy Adami, he had to go see a man about a horse or something. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll talk to you about that tomorrow. So thank you, Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. You can check him out at worthcharting.com. We love his work and he is a dear friend of ours. So that's going to do it today for Market Call. We once again want to thank our sponsors, FactSet and Open Exchange. Guy and I will be back tomorrow, as I just said, at 1 p.m. Eastern with Liz Young from SoFi. We're going to break down all of the action in the post-Fed period here and kind of give some sense of where we think things are going from there. So thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks, Guy Adami. Thanks, Carter Worth. Thanks to our sponsors. We'll see you all tomorrow at 1. 